Welcome back to the 79th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories pertaining to who the future GOP nominee for 2024 is going to be. We're going to be talking about mostly DeSantis, Tim Scott, and Youngkin. Not Nikki Haley or Trump. We're going to be talking about the ones who haven't necessarily declared yet and who may be jumping into the race here soon. And as I'm recording this, none of those three people that I've mentioned have jumped in, but there has been lots of speculation. And Tim Scott released a book, so you know something's coming down the pipeline. And then, of course, we'll end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump into our daily debate. So, like I said, who is the best GOP candidate for 2024? Or potential candidate, considering only two have really declared their run at the time of recording this. In a previous podcast, we discussed the future of the Democratic Party and their lack of good options when it comes to 2024. The GOP seems to have a opposite problem with too many options that all check different boxes, quote-unquote. Some have foreign, foreign policy experience. Some have good domestic policy. Some have pertained or pretended to care about culture war issues, and some of them have gone full weight into the culture wars. So there are lots of different boxes that lots of different conservative voters may want ticked off. But which one's the best overall candidate? So I'm going to pose a two-part question. Who do you think should get the nomination? And who do you think actually will get the nomination? If you have any strong opinions, throw them down in the comment section. I'd love to read and kind of gauge what people are thinking on this one. All right, our first article comes from Fox News. Youngkin orders Virginia's education secretary to revise the college board's AP African American Studies. So today we're going to tackle the possible candidates. And one of the main ones we're going to start with, like the article head suggests, is Youngkin. My boy from Virginia, I say my boy, my governor from my home state of Virginia. So that's why I wanted to tackle him first. So after he got elected to the governorship, Youngkin has really, really tried to live up to his campaign promises. One of the more recent things before this last announcement of looking at the AP class was tax cuts. And before that, it was the main one that everybody is thinking about and really sticks in the front of their mind is Executive Order 1, where he's trying to limit CRT and other divisive teachings in school. And, you know, besides that, there hasn't been much that's gained national media attention. You know, of course, there's the local papers saying things. But for the most part, he's been a pretty quiet governor. And a lot of people are not necessarily mad about that. They're actually kind of happy that we don't have to deal with any drama, any huge policy changes, just small things that he said he would promise he would do, take down the taxes, give parents a little bit more control, or at least a say in what's going on in their schools. So he's really been trying to live up 
to those campaign promises. And to keep on doing that, that's what this latest proposal is about. Quote, Governor Glenn Youngkin has ordered Virginia's education secretary to review the college board's AP African Studies, joining three other states in a review of the course. Arkansas, Mississippi, and North Dakota have also ordered reviews to see if it conflicts with any state policies regarding the teaching of race, and Florida has already banned the course. A spokesperson for Youngkin released the following statement, quote, after numerous reports about draft course content, the governor asked the Education Secretariat to review the College Board's proposed AP African American Studies course as it pertains to Executive Order 1, end quote. So for those of you that don't know, Executive Order 1 is, I kind of summarized it earlier, was an executive order put in place within, I believe, Youngkin's first day where he said that we're not going to teach divisive content to our children in schools. We're not going to teach CRT, critical race theory. And at the end of the day, it was really meant to speak to the parents who were afraid that some of these hot topics, some of these divisive topics that may cause their children to question whether they're good people or not, or whether they had a, a key role in the modern society when it comes to racism or things of this nature, he wanted to make sure that stays out of schools, and he wanted to make sure that parents knew that he was on their side, so he signed Executive Order 1. And obviously, this new policy that he's proposing is in line with his previous campaign. And this is where he's really trying to build on that, that parent vote that he captured the first time. The suburban moms who see these stories about CRT and different radical, and I, radical is a strong word, but maybe heavily biased programs and teachings coming into the schools all across this country, and they're kind of scared for their kids, and they don't want their kids to have to go through these sort of what some people would call re-education or maybe more drastic teachings that are naturally telling people to you should be on that you should be on opposite sides. That at the end of the day, because of the way you are inherently, there are differences in this society. Systemic racism is a big one. And a lot of people were scared by that. A lot of suburban moms were scared. And that you saw them going to these board school board meetings and protesting and Youngkin really tapped into that and it was kind of a unforeseen thing but then Terry McAuliffe said something stupid which is I don't understand why parents should be telling teachers what to do basically and that quote was used in attack ads over and over and over again and if you lived in Virginia, that's the only thing you saw for about three months. So, you know, Youngkin hit that hard. He really, really went for those parents, and now he's solidifying it. He followed through with Executive Order 1, and now he's kind of playing to the crowd a little bit, saying, yeah, we can tackle this issue too. And, you know, the College Board amended the course because of the blowback initially, and this new review that they're doing is of the amended course that was released on, or at least the new notes for were released on February 1st. Quote, the course, Advanced Placement Course in African American Studies, covers a variety of black history 
and topics and was set to be piloted in about 60 classrooms nationwide this year. The College Board released a revised version of the course on February 1st. The updated version of the course removed its lessons on Black Lives Matter and suggested readings for Kimberly Crenshaw, the author of Critical Race Theory, the key writings that formed the movement, published on May 1st, 1996. The book is a compilation of significant writings that formed and sustained the critical race theory movement, end quote. So with these changes, Youngkin really wants to wants the course to be looked at and evaluated again. There was already an understanding that they wouldn't necessarily want this kind of course being taught to kids in Virginia, but now that the college board has reviewed it, they're going to go back again and say, okay, did they actually get rid of the things that we don't want in there, that our parents don't want in there being taught to their kids, or did they just take away a few hot topics and basically they're going to say yay or nay to having this being taught in our schools probably within the next month or so. And Yunkin is really sticking to his guns here. Like I was talking about, he really isn't going out of his way to start any more issues than he promised he would. And even then, he's not trying to be overly divisive and have his guns ablazing for Democrats. He's just sticking to what he said he was going to do. And I think this is an intentional play on his point. He's not straying too far into the culture war like you'll see some other governors doing. And he's not coming out and saying much about the abortion issue either when that was overturned. He has said that we're going to keep the right-to-work state status in Virginia. Besides that, it hasn't really come out and changed much there. So he's trying to appear as a moderate. He's trying to walk the middle line, essentially. And, you know, this is him really getting ready for a presidential run, in my opinion. He's trying to solidify the base in Virginia and make sure that he's still in the headlines every once in a while so he has name recognition across the country before he goes into a presidential run. And to be quite honest, I don't think he has enough experience yet. Maybe another few years in Virginia would do him well because he's kind of an outsider. And maybe if he spends another four years in the governorship, and then he has a Reagan-like ascendancy in 2026, sorry, in 2028 or 2032. Maybe that's a possibility. I don't necessarily see it happening. But if Trump wins this time, then in theory, Yunkin could come in, in 2028. But that's still a long way away. So I don't know. He may be looking at this moment and saying, this is a political moment for me. This is when I have the most capital when I'm actually actively doing things. I just won an election basically two years ago. I've had a good national presentation, so why not take this opportunity? I just don't think he has enough experience as an outsider. And there are some people who would question, well, yeah, he's an outsider with ties to big business. And, you know, he is very business savvy, but he's worked in the halls of Virginia that coordinate with Wall Street before. And there's a lot of money that floats in from there. And I don't necessarily know. I'm not saying I don't like Youngkin because of it, because, of course, you have to make your money somewhere. But that would be a concern of mine that Wall Street would have his ear if he was in the presidential office, just like they already have the ear of the president. But maybe he has some friends there that he appoints to certain places and they have a more pro-Wall Street agenda 
that doesn't actually serve the little guy. So that's just another concern. It's not really at the forefront of my mind. That's why it's thrown in here at the back of the article, or at least the back of this section for me. But I do want to highlight the last quote that they have from the article. Youngkin's move came after Florida rejected an advanced placement African-American studies course because it contained elements of critical race theory and black queer studies, according to a document shared with Fox News Digital detailing the concerns identified by the Florida Department of Education, end quote. And why I wanted to highlight this is because it's Youngkin just following in DeSantis's footsteps. He saw what DeSantis did in the culture war. He saw that this one wasn't so divisive among the parents. And he also noticed that he can actually do this. He can't tax, he can't get rid of Disney's special tax status and their special treatment in Florida or in any place in Virginia because they don't have a resort or a giant amusement park here. But he can try to ban this advanced placement uh, course that might be a little concerning to his constituents. He saw that Ron DeSantis is doing it. He's trying to stay relevant, and that's why he's following on DeSantis's coattails, at least in my opinion. And that's why I wanted to highlight it, too, because our next one that we're going to be talking about, the next candidate, guess who it is? This story comes from Raw Story. GOP grumbling that DeSantis has overstepped in his anti-woke crusade. So the most talked-about non-declared candidate is, of course, Ron DeSantis of Florida. The buzz around this guy is absolutely insane. Some of the media stunts that he's pulled, while also being able to be an effective governor during the hurricane, maybe a little lackluster at the beginning of the pandemic, but quickly corrected some of his actions, bringing in investment from other states who are leaving behind maybe Illinois or California, things of that nature. So he's been a competent governor while also picking his culture battle victories and the stunts that he wants to pull very specifically. And it's really kept him in the national news. And it's made sure that everybody around the United States is aware of Ron DeSantis. And this is his political moment. He could, in theory, go for the rest of his term and then wait two years until the next election when he's done with his term as governor in Florida. But this is his political moment. And I'm pretty sure at this point he's going to jump in, but he hasn't said he is. He's not guaranteeing anything. We know he has a large war chest, chest, but we'll, we'll see how this pans out. But I do want to, of course, discuss him because Yunkin is our moderate outsider. Then we have DeSantis, our culture warrior. And then the last one we'll get to, Tim Scott, is kind of our establishment moderate. And I think it shows a nice dichotomy between, not even a dichotomy, technically be a trichotomy between the different brands of Republican and conservative that are running currently. So DeSantis has had no issues jumping into the culture war whatsoever when it comes to trans rights, when it comes to racism, when it comes to Disney doing certain things and trying to provoke the Florida government. Quote, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is coming off his resounding re-election with buzz from Republican strategists that he could be an alternative to former President Donald Trump in 2024, a possibility he is teasing but has not yet formally declared. But even now, reported Steve Contrano from CEN, some Republicans 
including his own allies, are worried that DeSantis's crusade against wokeness, including a school censorship bill so broad it could cause some teachers to empty school bookshelves entirely, and a ban on Florida government agencies from doing business with any company using sustainability targets. Quote, there's a growing concern from Republican supporters of DeSantis that he's overstepped in some of the ways in his fight, said anchor John Berman, cutting over to Contorno in St. Petersburg, Florida. What are you hearing from Republicans about this? End quote. And, you know, of course, the establishment Republicans and the establishment lefties, they are fearful of him. And this is because, one, he's speaking to the people. He's ensuring that he is pegging himself as a populist candidate who has a wealth of political experience. He's civilized, and he can be very to the point and blunt, but he is also very, very effective, and that's what's scary. He is basically a Trump in the way that he handles the media. He bullies them around, but he's civilized. And he goes about things in a more tactical manner. And he understands the workings of government better than Trump did, at least when he went in the first time. So, of course, they fear him. He stands for the exact opposite of what they stand for. He's willing to fight on the culture war rather than just sticking to major policies. And he could actually, at the end of the day, he could get into office and he could shift the direction of the culture of the United States. Now, would most of his actions be repealed once a Democrat gets back into office? More than likely. But he could have a Reagan-level effect if he gets into office. And that's why conservatives love him. That's why the mainstream conservatives hate him, because he could have a huge effect like Reagan did and redirect the party, and they don't want to be redirected away from the middle omni party that sits in Washington. They want to stay as they are. And he could really move things in a more populist direction. So that's why basically everybody, there are a lot of people supporting him, but there are also a lot of people who fear him and don't want him in office. But that doesn't mean that their concerns aren't unfounded. He has definitely concentrated a great deal of power in the executive. Quote, John, there are basically two camps of Republicans we've talked to, said Contorno. There's a sort of free market conservatives who are looking to turn the page from Trump, and they're finding they are troubled with DeSantis's moving some of the same tendencies as Trump and using government power to push his ideology on public institutions, on higher education, and even on businesses. This has given them some reason to pause about DeSantis being an alternative to Trump. But even people who broadly support his agenda, noted Cortano, are beginning to feel uneasy because they worry his attacks on businesses and educators just won't play well with voters, end quote. And of course, you know, those in academia, they absolutely hate him. Those that are in the institutions are not happy with DeSantis because he's actively gunning for them. He's trying to tear them down. He's trying to get rid of these institutions that have been a huge part of the culture for a long time. He's trying to gut them and make sure that they come out conservative. And whether you agree with that or disagree with that, of course it makes sense that they would be fearful that this is happening and why you would see a lot of the intellectuals who are quote-unquote intellectuals in these institutions be fearful of what DeSantis is doing. 
And I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing because if you completely gut the institutions and you put in a whole bunch of far right people, then we're going to have the exact same issue that we had with the people that are really progressive in there. They're not going to let any other opinions come in. They're going to use their power in an abusive fashion. And then the Democrats and lefties are going to come back and say, look what you did now. Now we're going to have to come in and gut it again. It's just a cycle. It's a tit for tat. We don't want that. We want construction, not destruction, especially trying to rebuild America out of COVID and trying to bring us back together in an era where we are ever, ever so divided. And how DeSantis can actually serve to do that is to bring together the blue-collar base, to bring together the people that work hardest in this nation. And he really does appeal to them at the end of the day because he does care about the issues that matter to people in the culture. And, you know, a lot of people say the culture wars aren't important. And I would agree to some degree they are not as important as policy prescriptions. But... They are important to parents. They're important to a certain segment of the population who have been dealing with the consequences of those culture wars. And DeSantis is trying to speak to them. The people that feel they've been disenfranchised by manufacturing, going to other countries, the parents who feel as though woke culture is taking their children away from them. And importantly, he's trying to appeal beyond just Florida. He's trying to appeal to these same people in other states as well and show, yes, I'm willing to fight for my citizens, my parents, the blue-collar workers, all these different people in Florida, but he's doing all these stunts to get national recognition, so he also shows them, I'll do it for you too. I'll play this game on the biggest stage, not just in Florida. And it really has built his national reputation. And that's why I think he has a good springboard. Like I said, he has a big war chest. He has name recognition right now. It's a good political moment for him. And I wouldn't be surprised if he announces his running here soon. And I know it's nothing special. I'm not out here saying, oh, yes, look at my new original opinion. Look at this. I know he's going to run. Almost everybody says he's going to run. And I wouldn't be surprised if it comes here soon. And there's one more person that I wouldn't be surprised if they fully announce their run, even though, you know, they're basically running at this point. They've released a book. They've done a unity speech in their home state. And as I mentioned earlier, it's Tim Scott. This article comes from the New York Times. Tim Scott weighs 2024 run, selling unity to a party eager for a fight. So, quote, Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina openly eyeing a path-breaking run for the Republican presidential nomination came home Thursday night to the city that started the Civil War to test out themes of unity and forgiveness aimed at current war in his party and the divisions roiling the nation at large. The ultimate question is whether Republican voters who embrace Donald J. Trump's brand of us-versus-them divisiveness are ready for the themes that Mr. Scott is selling. End quote. So he's really employing the Nikki Haley, Biden, Joe Biden strategy, which is a return to normalcy. This is the main, a mainstream candidate. This is a person who's been a part of the Washington machine. He is slick. He's charismatic. He's not a bad person. He cares about his constituents as far as we can tell. He cares about certain issues that are very important to the consciousness of the nation, which we'll get into here in a little bit. And like I said, it's that brand of normalcy, united. I'm going to bring you back underneath. As Obama said, not red America, not blue America. 
I am just going to be the president of America. And that's what this first speech really showed. It was trying to highlight the fact that we can come together. It's not about our outward characteristics. It's not about our sexual orientation, gender, so on and so forth. It's about the content of our character. Yes, I know that's been overwrought over the last little bit. And the attitude that we bring to the table. If we can try to be united, if we actively strive to be united, we can be. And we shouldn't let these other surface-level issues keep us apart. Because at the end of the day, we are American. But like I mentioned, Nikki Haley, you know she's running at this point. She is also from South Carolina. That It becomes a little bit tricky with Tim Scott because her and Tim Scott, both running in the primaries, they're going to split the South Carolina vote. And that may leave room for a lot of the Trump loyalists, the more populist voters, to come through and give him the nomination. So I don't necessarily know if you want both Nikki Haley, if you're against Trump, I don't know if you want Nikki Haley and Tim Scott both still in the race when you get to the South Carolina primary. At that point, you would want one of them to back out and endorse the other because otherwise they're going to split the vote. They're going to force Carolinans to pick between them, and then the people that really like Trump, the loyalists, may come through and steal it again. That's how we got through the primaries last time. There were, He had such a dedicated base, and there were so many other candidates that the more moderate Republicans were split between them, and by the time most of them had dropped out and endorsed one another, it was too late. He was already on top in getting the nomination for the Republican Party. So we'll see if the same mistake is made again, or if the moderates, if they really don't want Trump in, if the rhinos don't want Trump in, they could band together, have all these people run in different states, and basically block out Trump from gaining enough to have a majority by the time the nomination rolls around. All of them back out, endorse the more moderate rhino candidate, and Trump loses. We'll see how it it plays out. I don't know. I I heard that from a... I was trying to do a little bit of research earlier, and Charlie Kirk said, yeah, there's a conceded effort to keep keep Donald Trump out of the presidency, that the Republicans are going to play this really strategic long game making sure everybody's lined up in the right order to make sure that the primaries don't go in the favor of Trump. I'm like, this sounds like such a a big conspiracy theory. I'm not saying it doesn't happen because that's how they screwed over Bernie Sanders and the Democratic Party. I just, it felt like too much of a headcanon for me to fully believe that mainstream Republicans are going to do this. But that's just my opinion on it. But also, you need to remember with Scott, let's jump back to Scott. Scott has a track record, just like Nikki Haley and Trump at this point, even though Trump has it as a president, Nikki Haley has it as a governor and an ambassador to the UN, Scott does have a track record. And that's what the strength is of all these people that I've mentioned today and that are already in the race. Youngkin's track record may be a little bit weaker than others, but he has a track record. So does DeSantis. So does Scott, Haley, and Trump. So I think at the end of the day, we actually have, on the Republican side, there are a lot of good candidates. I'm not saying that all one's better than the other. I'm not saying all their policies are good, but we have tested candidates who come in who have a good understanding of what's going on inside Washington, and either that means they can dismantle it or they can work within it, depending on which one, which candidate gets in. And I think that actually serves the Republican Party because, as you may have heard, the red wave didn't happen because... The Republicans put up terrible candidates. They put up people like Mehmet Oz, Carrie Lake, 
and Mastriano, Mastriano to be the governor of Pennsylvania. So you saw these really weak candidates. Now it seems to be a slate of a lot stronger candidates. And whether you like them or not, whether you want Trump in or not, whether you want these other people in or not, the stronger the candidate pool, the more vigorous the debate, the more fleshed out their arguments are going to have to be, and the more likely a stronger candidate is going to come out on top when going into the general. So if you're a Republican, you may be looking at this craziness, you may not love that, but you may like the fact that the strongest candidate is going to come out and they're going to have to go through thick and thin in order to get there. So if the people that are a little bit weaker, that don't really want the presidency, which I don't know anyone who's in this political position that wouldn't want the presidency, but the really weak candidates are going to get cut out very quickly, especially with this slate, how it's panning out to be so far. So there's one more quote that I want to read you here, and it really does speak to Scott's track record. Quote, in 2020, the, after George Floyd's murder, Tim Scott brokered a Republican police reform bill that would have encouraged police departments to restrict the use of chokeholds and penalized departments that do not require body cameras, among other measures. But Democrats wanted far more, and the effort ended in 2021. Last year, President Biden signed the legislation championed for nearly a decade by Mr. Scott that made lynchings a federal hate crime. But Mr. Scott, over his lengthy political career, has dwelled far more on his own bootstrap story. He has spoken out about his mother extracting herself or taking herself out of an abusive marriage and his grandparents teaching the lesson of perseverance learned in the cotton fields and the hardship of the segregated South, end quote. And this is what I was talking about. He has a track record. He has stories that he's been relying on, don't get me wrong, but he has this deep story, this charisma, this tale that has kept him politically relevant and allowed him to build up a good base and a good war chest and ensure that he stays in Washington and puts forward meaningful legislation. Does it mean that it always gets through? No. But he has a track record of caring and trying to speak to issues that speak to the everyday man while also still being in line with the party at the end of the day. And I think if you want a moderate candidate who you can really trust and you just don't like Nikki Haley or maybe you don't like DeSantis and if you want more experience than Youngkin, Tim Scott may be your guy. I'm not endorsing him. I'm not saying you should. I'm just saying he may be your guy. And I think it adds a special spin when he's jumping into, if he jumps into the primaries. So it'll be interesting. And then now that we're done with all that stuff, we got one more, which is the Daily Delight. This one comes from the Animal Rescue site. Cute Boxer helps friend bust out of his kennel. So I know plenty of people have seen a whole bunch of jailbreak movies. Now imagine that with the actors being replaced by dogs. Quote, in an adorable video, you can see Cooper alongside another boxer who are both free roaming in the house. Bella the boxer notices Cooper locked in the kennel and uh, is, makes up his mind to help him bust a little pooch out of the cage. And you can really tell the first act here is the planning stage. You're sitting there contemplating. But then Bella quickly jumps into action and goes into the next phase. Quote, it doesn't take long for Bella to mess with the kennel's lock and free Cooper. It's truly impressive how quickly the dog is able to manipulate the lock and free his canine friend. It's unclear what kind of shenanigans the pups got up to after that, 
but after such an impressive breakout, we can only imagine they had some fun. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos of Bella and Cooper, or if you want to read any of today's article, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button where you can find all of today's articles. Also down there in the description is the Twitter link at your daily flip. I post the link to the podcast there. And then also, if you want to download it on Spotify, Podca- uh, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, there are links down there where you can go download them, listen to them on the road. All right. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die. <laughs>